Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is the 132nd edition. On the program today, I'm going to be continuing to share interviews that I recorded in Berlin this past summer. Over the recent weeks, I've been sharing a series of interviews that I recorded with artists and activists, filmmakers, and different voices that I felt it was important to highlight people I got a chance to meet and connect with during my visit. On the program this week, I'm going to be sharing a conversation that I had with Philip Rizik, who is a filmmaker, a social activist, a writer. Uh, Philip has worked extensively on bringing attention to struggles for human rights and justice in Egypt. He has created a number of works, including Out on the Streets in 2015, Mapping Lessons more recently in 2020, which we talk about a bit in the conversation. And uh, in 2022, he's been working on a project called Terrible Sounds and Wonderful Things. Philip's work looks at the contemporary context of the realities of neocolonialism in Egypt, but also across the Western Asian regions, um, including Syria and Palestine. A look back onto the ways that borderlines were drawn, going back to French, British, colonialism, the influence of American hegemonic power in the 20th century. His works are often collaborative. He works with musicians and archivists and activists and was very vocal in the context of the Egyptian uprising against the authoritarian government of Hosni Mubarak and has continued to talk and to speak and to create works about Egypt. So we talked about all of this and other topics. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Here's my conversation with Philip Rezik, recorded in Berlin. Okay, so we're in Berlin. Um, there's some fountains, it's pretty hot. Um, and I'm sitting with filmmaker Philip Rizik, uh, who has worked on many projects. Uh, one of the ones that we are hoping to carry a bit of conversation about in this program today is called Mapping Lessons. And that's a film looking at boundaries, colonialism, explorations of that in culture, many things are going on in that film, but maybe just, I, and let's get into it, but first could you just introduce yourself and share a bit about who you are, what you do? Uh, my name is Philip Riz. I am uh, a filmmaker, as you say, um, from Egypt, uh, living in Berlin since a couple of years. I do some writing, that's that's uh, that's about it. I'm I'm a father of a of a three year old. Wow. So. wow. Shout out to the three year olds. Lots of energy. Uh, your film has a lot of energy too, and a lot of a lot of jumping. Um, you're thinking about sort of histories of colonialism and borders, representations in colonial culture. Um, can you talk a bit about what where you were going with this piece? Uh, 
I think there would be some familiarity with the fact that colonial powers literally drew lines and divided up uh, greater Syria um, in a very violent uh, way that did not involve the indigenous people who were affected by those lines. Uh, and that has been romanticized in pop culture in the West often, the sort of the power involved. What were you trying to say about that period in your work and the sort of remixing of both fiction and nonfiction uh, material referencing that? I mean, first of all, thanks for watching it. Uh, it's um, it's a project that's uh, very special to me. I spent a long time working on it, and I think it's quite. It's not the easiest film to watch. I'm I'm glad you in, enjoyed it, and you yeah. you mentioned the, the jumping around. Uh, I mean, the film jumps around, but it's also uh, quite energetic. I think yeah. in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the the starting point for me is um you know i i participated in the egyptian revolution and um we were quite busy and distracted with what was happening there to uh that didn't really allow to make much time for other things following other struggles and um so i came quite late to realize that uh, the revolution in Syria in certain ways had gone much further than uh, the revolution in Egyptian in, in Egypt um, of course now it's quite uh, tragic um, the point that it's reached because of so, so many different factors but what I, what I choose to do in that film is really I, I, I focus on one particular aspect of the Syrian revolution, which is, um, you know, the opposition succeeded in Syria to liberate territories from a dictatorship. And in that liberation, in that process of liberation, they also began developing mechanisms for autonomy, how, how to run communities and this included you know very everyday things like making sure bakeries are running and you know that there's some kind of uh, clean drinking water and clinics and schools and you know the, the everyday things of, of life in, in society in communities and um, yeah this was kind of my, my starting point with that project and when I began researching there was very very little information about this aspect mm -hmm. of the revolution because it's not spectacular it's mm. not what the media is interested in um, you know but by, by then so I started working on it in 2014-15 already Syria was uh, had bec had been turned into uh, images of war and refugees and that was the narrative that's you know you can find countless images and stories and films about that and so this story of uh, liberatory struggle is completely um, 
it's crushed, you know. And 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 the th- the truth is, I mean, it was a it's very a, a short-lived struggle. Like a lot of these experiments didn't last that long. But that didn't really matter to me because it, I mean, of course, it matters that those struggles weren't able to continue. But I I wasn't planning to make a documentary. You know, I didn't want to document events that had taken place. You know, I I. I never went to Syria during or after the period of the revolution. I'd been there previously um, and, I, and I didn't film a single image or single shot in this film. This is, it's, a, it's a found footage film. But it was very important for me to, to dissect, um, to look at this kind of archaeology of, of what had happened. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to spend quite a a bit of time doing that um, and one of the things that I found was that there was actually quite a similar experiment um, 90 years earlier so you know following the, f- the First World War one of the outcomes of the First World War was that the Ottoman Empire went or was was given to the victor of the European powers that were slaughtering each other in Europe. This is something you know we we rarely hear about because you know, the the Ottoman Empire is massive, and so the Germans really you know as we are in Berlin really had their eye on the Ottoman Empire. They'd already been there for many years. They'd gotten close to um, the Ottoman ruler. They already had, had they'd built infrastructure, train tracks. Um, already had various projects going on there but uh, sadly for them they lost the war and so they didn't they didn't get their piece of the pie you know there's this this saying in Germany that they wanted their day in the Sun they they longed for the kind of colonial projects that so many other European powers had managed uh, to brutally run for so many years and so the British and the French were the ones to inherit the Ottoman Empire, um, also called the, the weak man of Europe at that time. So they, they, they got the territory with all the people in it. And there was this short period before the arrival of the French. So the British and the French are sitting in various uh, places around the world mapping out who gets what and there was even a you know a, a change at some point Syria was going to go to the British and then they had some more negotiations and went back to the, went to the French and um, following the, the 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 falling apart of the Ottoman Empire's structures there was a, sh- a small attempt at these kinds of local councils at least around Damascus um, I mean, none of these experiments are perfect, you know, they were run, definitely run by aristocrats, they are all run by men, you know, women had no say in them. It was limited, but the truth is, they never had a chance to continue, because as soon as the French arrived, there was a lot of resistance, um, but it couldn't face up to, uh, you know, the, the mechanism of, mechanisms of war that, that the French had developed. Um, and yeah, the French took Syria, shut down any kinds of experiments of, of small, you know, local governance of any type, and exiled some of the leaders who were most involved in that experiment. 
This, to begin with, is a story that most Syrians don't know about because it's not, uh, it's not celebrated. It's not part of the state narrative that you learn in history. And I think it's quite an important uh, precedent for this kind of experiments and attempts of local governance that took place during the Syrian revolution. At some point I was reading this book called um, Revolutionary Dreams by a historian called Richard Stites. Um, in it he mentions, I mean, he's, you know, he's writing about uh, the Russian Revolution. And in it he mentions this, what he terms psychic mechanism. So when uh, these moments of struggle take place, even if they're wiped out, they, they leave uh, a trace. They leave something, a, a sort of a kind of power that, you know, we might not be able to identify, but it, it, it bears fruit. And he found that it bears fruit at some point in, in the future. And so many of the split, the sites of the biggest struggles in Russia against Tsarist Russia, um, prior to the revolution, were also the some of the strongest uh, places of opposition during the revolution. And I found a similar thing in Syria, actually. So some of the sites where the strongest battles had taken place, the biggest battles against the French invading, were also the same places where there was a very strong resistance against the Assad dictatorship. And so we, you know, we're talking about cycles, and I think this is also important for me in regards to this film. You know, I'm not, I'm trying not to look back with with my back turned to the future. Um, I, I would like to learn things from what has happened either recently or in the further past um, to help to, to give us tools to deal with the present and the future and yeah this you know this is one of the reasons why the film is as strange as it is it's kind of unusual because um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sticking to kind of uh, the rules of, of the game in, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to report on an event or um, explain a kind of story that happened. I, I, I wanted to leave things a little bit more open and, and give the viewers more of their own autonomy in putting things, pieces of a puzzle together, mm. and and feeling things rather than than um, being told what happened or what they should think. Um, so for me, it's a lot about juxtaposing what might seem like unusual moments um, with each other. I can go on for a long time, so I don't know if you want to sure, focus well, on something yeah, particular. Well, Absolutely. Well, picking up from what you said, um, the creation of sort of moments, um, space-time changes that exist in, in struggle, right? Like, I think the, what is so important, I mean, there's many things that you said were very insightful there, but one of them is that it's hard to measure the ways that a struggle uh, sort of manifests itself when we're talking about uh, a reorientation of society, like uh, not appealing to the existing state, but to try to 
create a new infrastructure for society to exist. Uh, and you, you mentioned like Membij, for example, or many of these small um, uh, towns and small cities in Syria where people had these councils to decide around the bakeries, uh, security services. I mean, um, thinking about that, why is it important for people to understand the sort of ways that 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 experiment there's no like clear end game right like and and the idea that a political struggle must prescribe to certain fixed outcomes right like and i, I think that that says so much about the colonial mindset right and and how power manifests itself in terms of what people think is possible and i really appreciate what you're saying about how in syria these new spaces were opened up with all their problems so Maybe if you could share some more thoughts about that and how your film was trying to address that point, because I think it's really underexplored. Also, people who are critical of the uprising that, oh, well, there wasn't clear plan A, B or C. There was a multitude of. Yeah. No, I mean, it's tricky, you know, this idea of having a plan. I mean, first of all, most of these communities, especially in the Arabic-speaking world, for lack of a better term, um, they, don't, they don't get much opportunity to plan, you know, because um, if you do too much planning, you end up in prison, and then you're not going to be doing much of any planning. Um, and, you know, mo most of the dictatorships in the region are very good at identifying opposition groups and hindering their activities and so um, yeah you know there's there's no opposition parties really to speak of for example um, where any kind of planning or any kind of alternative vision could be formed in conversation like in a structured way and so yeah it's a lot of what happens is simultaneous uh, is spontaneous uh, protest, spontaneous uh, revolt, which I think is very important and and it's very necessary, but um, it often means shit. Suddenly, on the spot, you 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 need to think. Okay, what what are we actually fighting for? We know what we're fighting against, but what what are we building in its place? Or um, you know, how how can society look different? And I mean. <laughs> That's a pretty big task when you're, you know, you, you live in this neo-colonial society um, where the, the powers that be have a lot of financial and military support from all sorts of uh, imperial powers outside. And, you know, you, you're not just facing a corrupt president or, you know, a, you know, a, a non-democratic government. You're, you're facing a system. And so to come up with alternatives to that system is is an immense an immense challenge, and it has no borders. I mean, this is why for me it was absolutely vital to uh, spend time on the Syrian uh, experiment, which I think is the most radical experiment that's happened in the region in its modern history. Um, to try and learn from that, and you know I. I, you know, I, I don't know where this film's going to go or the conversations around the film or that might be sparked, you know, that, that all go back to the actual radical experiments on the ground. 
but I'd like to at least play a little role in bringing that conversation about, you know? Um, because, yeah, it needs to happen. It needs to happen across borders and across languages because the struggle is one, you know? And so you'll find in the film um, images from Syria juxtaposed to images of, you know, the Paris Commune or uh, v Vietnamese resistance to the Americans or um, images from Spain or, 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 or Angola. Um, because they, there is something shared in these different struggles, anti-colonial or anti-neo-colonial. And we, the ones that struggle, have something to, to figure out. And I hope that this film helps us prepare a little bit, at least. Because I think it's in these moments of, of, uh, of, of where struggle is not really possible, as it is in Egypt, that we spend some time actually preparing, that we spend time thinking rather than just waiting for something to change. You're very aware, I'm sure, that the protest movements and resistance to injustice, censorship, police killings, torture, economic injustice, economic inequality, um, repression in Syria uh, have been characterized by many on the left as a ploy to basically undercut a government that is in opposition to imperial power, right? And so I'm, I'm actually just bringing this up because I have to be honest with you and you know, this is how I go with this show. I'm very confused when I, I'm not confused in the sense that I, I don't see with the argument, but I'm very confused when I see people who for years I felt in alignment with in terms of speaking out for Palestinian human rights, which I always saw as a, a sort of um, an indicator within the West at least, because it's such still a taboo topic to criticize the Israeli state in so many mainstream circles. I trusted those voices and you know, I, I then would see the, the text of, um, you know, uh, various Syrian activists in diaspora uh, taking on those positions. Um, you know, there's many people that come to mind. It's not really important, the names. But the, I don't know how to grapple with the fact that that radical experiment of protest and autonomy that did take place in many imperfections and we, we know very well that the Gulf was involved financially or the Saudi Arabian government did support various factions. But I, don't, I still can't understand how that fact undercuts the importance of what happened. I, I, just, I, I think this is a hard question to figure out. And, and I think there's, you know, your film sort of like exists more in the dream space and like sort of historical echoes across generations from which struggle actually comes rather than this sort of prescribed program. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this because I, I, I'm still often thinking about this and I, I don't, you know, are talking with friends. No, I mean, I, I was also very confused when I came about this because I, I honestly had never heard of such a thing as anti-imperialism as a kind of fixed ideology. I mean, I understand uh, being against imperialism, but um, 
you know, my 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 reading of that situation is really when when we fixate too much on one evil, I think there's sadly the danger of not being able to identify other evils you know I, th I think this we we do not live in a black and white world we don't there's not just that one bad big boogeyman and other people you know everyone who's not part of that system is fine it, it just doesn't work like that and so you know maybe you know a, a kind of example from my own experiences you know, we we in the when the revolution began in Egypt, we uh, we we were opposing the Mubarak regime, which you know was a was a military state. You know, he was a military man, and that's what we were opposing. And when the Muslim Brotherhood um, won the first elections after the toppling of Mubarak, um, I you know I w I wasn't happy about it. I mean, it's. I, I was never a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood, even if they participated in the Egyptian Revolution. But that didn't, for me, translate into I, I would support them. And they very quickly started um, using the same uh, mechanisms and tools and, and uh, acted very similarly to the Mubarak regime. And so we started opposing them. And then, when they were toppled uh, in a coup by the remnants of the Egyptian military, um, you know, we opposed that new system just as much as we had opposed the previous two systems. But at that moment in time, anybody who opposed the military was very quickly identified as or accused of being a member of the Muslim Brotherhood because of this kind of same logic like as if you couldn't oppose or criticize two different powers even if those two powers opposed each other you know I mean I, I, I don't understand you know it's like it's to me it's very simplistic like I'm I'm not in any form uh, a supporter of US Empire uh, nor of Russian Empire, nor of uh, Saudi Saudi's influence in the region, nor of Iran's influence in the region, and I I I, I can't understand people who juxt you know to, who who set these two um, against each other as if if you're critical of one, you support the other, or uh, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, to, it's it's. I agree with you completely. It's 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 mind-boggling, honestly. And I think um, Palestine, in the mix of that, is even more complicated, you know. But I think one thing to keep in mind is that Palestinians, as a uh, community that received so little support especially increasingly with time um, from uh, let's say from by governments mm -hmm. uh, it was very hard for them to criticize a government that had even if it was primarily through words and not through actions 
had actually supported them or, or you know, claimed to be on their side. Exactly, rhetorically, on, in words. Um, but it needed to happen, you know. But I think for, for people this was a very deep inner struggle because, you know, you are, <laughs> you're, you are faced by enemies on all sides and someone who claims to support you, that you turn your back on them, I think was difficult for people. And so, yeah, this kind of anti-imperialism or, uh, you know, this logic of the US is bad, therefore the Assad regime is good because they oppose each other. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very far removed from reality. Thank you for the chat today. Appreciate it. That was a conversation with filmmaker, activist, and author Philip Rizik, recorded in Berlin this past summer. On the program today, it has been another in a series of conversations that I have recorded um, in Berlin this summer. I have been sharing these interviews over the past couple of weeks. Um, thank you so much to Philip Rizik for being on the show this week. To finish the program this week, I'll go out with some work from Egyptian vocalist, musician, composer, and actor Neda El Shazli. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another edition, and take care. Mene.